0: Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14? It's on page 538. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever noticed this as Christians in 2016 inside a church That there are a lot of things that we do inside this building that to the average neighbor, friend, or co-worker you might have may seem a bit unusual. We sing songs to an invisible deity. We close our eyes when we pray. We confess sin. Sometimes we eat small pieces of bread and drink from small cups. Uh, wine-like substance, Uh, sometimes we dip, douse, or dunk people in water, and if uh, some of you, maybe even today, are guests, uh, you have not the faintest idea exactly what that's all about. You've probably noticed that many of your friends and co-workers or classmates have a very different take on life. They don't necessarily believe in God. Uh, Their questions aren't necessarily your questions. Their thoughts aren't your thoughts. And many of your colleagues or friends can actually not even relate to a Christian commitment and any concern for the gospel seems inaccessible or irrelevant to them. The average person in your neighborhood has... An explosion of options, different ways to find a sense of significance in life. And for many of them, belief in God is really not that relevant. A transcendent explanation of the universe is really not that likable for them. It's not plausible. And this is the water that we swim in. These are your friends and mine, your neighbors and your colleagues. This is the the air we breathe. Uh, most of my life, I have, I have spent among people we, we now call secular. I was born and raised in the Netherlands and went to college in France and then for 15 years was a church planter in California. And those three places, all in their own way, were and are deeply secular. Now, usually when we, we think of a place as secular, we we think of it as, as a place where people have stopped going to church. And for sure, as to give you an example, in the Netherlands, in my mother's lifetime, she was born in 1943, we've seen the Dutch population gone from 70% of the population attending a church on a regular basis to now, in 2015, fewer than 16% of our population going to a church of any kind at all. In fact, if you, I don't know how many of you have been to the Netherlands, but if you were to uh, drive through just about any town, uh, you would notice that a lot of churches are actually no longer being used as churches. And I have a a couple of pictures of this for you. Uh, In my hometown, this is a trampoline park, we actually had a birthday party at that park, and I was not very happy to sit watching kids jump. I'm normally, these are fun things to do, but this uh, the most beautiful ones of these churches have been converted into landmark bookstores, uh, like this one in Maastricht. Uh, instead of being the home of a Christian congregation, some of these congreg- buildings are used by Islamic mosques, like this one in Amsterdam. It looks like a church, but it is no longer home to a Christian congregation. Uh, they are sometimes also used as skate parks, like this one. Uh, it's a tremendously popular venue for office parties, particularly at Christmas time. Uh, this is the one downtown The Hague. Uh, and that one also is frequently used for. New Age, and even adult entertainment industry conferences. But one of the things that you you notice when you encounter secular people in secular places, it is not only that people have stopped going to church or have started using churches for different purposes, it is that people really no longer feel any reason to believe in God. They no longer believe that God is real And this is actually something that we even found in churches in the Netherlands, even with some of my minister colleagues. Uh, One one denomination in the Netherlands featured a, a nationwide campaign to appeal to a secular audience. And they used slogans like this, my God lets me be me. My God allows me to think for myself. My God never forces me to do anything. And this one, my God doesn't do dogma. Now, of course, the great irony is that's a rather dogmatic statement, but I digress. Uh, my, My God doesn't look down on me. So there you see that even if there is a belief in God, the God that is worship is certainly not the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, it's this God is almost unrecognizable. And it's not only that people no longer go to church or that pastors sometimes can't muster anything beyond, you know, God is nice, be nice, isn't that nice? I mean, it seems to be the message sometimes. More more seriously, people no longer believe. That trusting in God is relevant or plausible. It is is no longer believable. And I think this is exactly what the psalmist is after in Psalm 14. The psalm begins with these words The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So people do no longer believe that believing in God is plausible. Uh, from some of the pulpits in the Netherlands and certainly in France, uh, you would get the impression that God is absent, that he cannot be known, that we can't know with any kind of certainty. And so what you get in the, in the water supply of our culture is, is what in Dutch we call, I don't know if there's any Dutch speakers, I'll actually translate it, but we call it uh, itsisme. And, and it's best translated as somethingism. I know it doesn't quite do justice to, it, but it, it means something. It is, in a, in other words, people believe in something or another. It is a, this vague kind of belief held by people who inwardly suspect that there might be something above, but they're not really sure. And so it's it's isma, it's somethingism, and it's this vague, nondescript belief in whatever. But there is really no need. Certainly no urgency ever to define who or what this is. God is of no concern right now. And this this world right here, this earthly existence is all there is. And the story of religion is no longer compelling. Many of my, my friends in the Netherlands these last seven years would find the questions about God and questions about sin or assurance of salvation, or gospel promise, or the atonement, they would find those questions incredibly irrelevant. And they would, just like a good Dutch, a blunt Dutchman would say, have we not outgrown this fairy tale of a dying and rising savior in an age of wisdom and in an age of science, what, what kind of foolishness is the gospel? Well, I realize, and I'm sure you notice this too, as I'm talking about these features of our secular age, that this is not just in California or in France or the Netherlands, but these are your classmates, these are your colleagues, these are your neighbors, maybe even some guests among us today, and this is what you recognize, Most of my secular friends would consider it a defect of my mind or character to believe in God. Uh, If you need religion, uh, it is only because you are spiritually or psychologically and emotionally weak. As Stephen Hawking has has said, heaven is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. It's a fairy story. People who are afraid of the dark. What they value and what they believe in is life here and now. This, this world is what really matters. Goals, hopes, and dreams for this world. That's what's believable. The, the quintessential expression of this is in the, in the theme song of the, the Beatles, Imagine. Some of you are too young to remember this. Imagine... There is no heaven, it's easy if you try. There is no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. See, that's it, that's it living for today, living for the here and now. This is the secular imagination. There is no God above that we should be concerned with. There is no heaven or hell below that we should be worried about. We are no longer afraid of guilt or judgment. There are no eternal repercussions or consequences to my behavior right now. No, we are no longer afraid No hell below us and above us, only sky. The only thing that matters is the here and now. People can say that they are perfectly happy with the here and now. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Science has proved religion wrong. It is the figment of your imagination. You don't have a soul. You are just a human being. You're just a body, just physical Uh, I haven't actually watched the show, but apparently it's super popular among millennials, The Walking Dead. And the show seems to think of people basically as a bunch of electrical activities. And as soon as the lights go out, you cease to exist. You don't have a soul and there is no heaven and there is no hell. You got to live in the moment. You got to live for now. And then all will be well. Except... When it is time to have a funeral. Now, the last few years in the Netherlands, I've conducted many a funeral. And often these funerals would be for one of the elderly people in our congregation whose children and grandchildren no longer attended and no longer believed. And I, I remember one in particular where a lady who, was, who had been a member of our church for decades, a woman of deep faith, her children or grandchildren no longer attended the church. In fact, they didn't even, they didn't even bother to be polite to her and show up for, for Christmas and Easter. I mean, you would think that's, that's the least you could do. But out of sheer politeness, but even that, they would not do. So when it came time to plan the funeral, I could tell pretty quickly uh, that the family had zero interest in having me play any part whatsoever in this funeral. Uh, they considered themselves too smart, too intelligent, too educated, too business-minded to have any need for a religious service professional. Uh, they didn't believe in God, they told me so, or in the supernatural world. In fact, they told me, we don't believe in anything that floaty. That's the word they used. They had no interest and having a religious ceremony, and frankly, they told me in no uncertain terms that they really had no use for me in this service, and they really only allowed me to play a small part in the funeral service out of respect and deference to their mother. I couldn't believe what I saw at this particular funeral, especially for a woman of faith. I would have expected them at least to choose the hymns that she'd been singing her entire adult life, but instead... I about fell off my chair. Instead, they they played as the, imagine this, there's this casket coming out at this funeral home and the music piped in is Que Sera, sera. Doris Day, Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Que Sarah, whatever it will be, will be. I about fell off my chair. And then suddenly, something happened. Uh, just as the as they were about to wheel the casket into the incinerator for the cremation, the son, who was eulogizing his mother, began to, to speak to his mother as if she was still alive, as if she could actually physically hear his words. He began to address her personally. and then. To my, to my great shock and surprise, began to talk not only as if she was still present and could hear him, but she, he began to say things like this. Mom, we know that you are in a better place right now. Mom, we know that one day we will be reunited. We will see each other on the other side. You are in a better place. And, and I, I could overhear them saying things to the grandchildren like, don't, don't worry, grandmother has, has fallen asleep. And inside I'm thinking, okay, the, the fool says in his heart there is no God. So deep down there is this belief that God does not exist. But right here in the cross currents of grief and tragedy, there is this restlessness. They are wondering there's got to be something more. And they are, they are reaching out for something on the other side. So, so I'm sitting there in befuddled silence like, okay, wh- why are they talking to these kids about the other side? This sounds floaty to me now. What is this inconsistent mumbo-jumbo? What are you going to say to the kids? Grandma's falling asleep. When is she waking up? She's in a better place. What better place than right here with us? How do you explain this? The psalmist says they actually sit in great terror because God is with the righteous. The Lord is with the righteous. The Lord is with those who recognize God as their ultimate authority and reference point. But in this moment, they sit in great terror. Because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I realize that very few of us wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be an atheist, or I'm going to be an agnostic, or I'm going to be a secular person who believes in somethingism. Now, we, we slowly but surely begin to Take this in. It, is in. it is in the water supply. We drink it in with our culture. Notice that the psalmist says, the fool says it in his heart. He, he or she may not actually even verbalize, say out loud, or profess as a creed that they don't believe in God, but for all practical purposes, they have no use for God in their way of life. And so this is really an inevitable outcome for living as if God does not exist. This is the secular age. Uh, if you look at the, one of the implications here in the second part of this psalm, it says, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And here you see the psalmist connects their indifference towards God directly to the way that they treat the poor. He connects their belief in God or their unbelief in God to evil doing. They're ruthless. And here we see, of course, that our habits of thought at one time or another in the long run affect the way we live you actually see that secularism is more than just not going to church. It is a lifestyle. It is a way of life. It reminds me of Fyodor Dostoevsky's famous line, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. When we live as if God does not exist, you can do whatever you want with your life in the here and now. Uh, Many of my Dutch and particularly Californian friends who we got to know and when we planted a Christian Reformed church just outside Sacramento, uh, they would often tell me that they thought the teachings of the Bible were oppressive. And its teachings about ethics and sexuality and human origins were regressive and backwards, and we have to get rid of them. They felt that they were constrictive. They, they constrict them from living life to the fullest. We have to shed these puritanical constrictions. We must shed them as something from the past that we really no longer have any use for. We want freedom. We want our urges and passions and desires to set the stage for what we really do. Yeah, secularism is a way of life more than just a set of ideas. Because they live in the here and now as if eternity doesn't matter and what reigns supreme is my thoughts, passions, desires, urges, and proclivities. And this way of life, living as if God does not exist, shows up in what you think and what you do with your money and how you parent and how, if, and when you marry and who. This is a way that's being handed down to us it's in the water supply. It's in the air you breathe. It's everywhere. Look, look at the diagnosis of the psalmist for a moment. The psalmist defines the, the foolishness of the evildoers. He says in verse 4, they will never learn. They have no knowledge, some other translations say. They're not actually in touch with reality. They don't understand the way things really are. They they have not seen that God is, in fact, the ultimate reference point. They have a knowledge problem. Their their views, their lifestyle does not actually correspond to reality. The fool has no knowledge. The fool does not understand the way the world really works. Their, Their mental map Their worldview does not correspond to reality. They're mistaken. They will never learn. And then look at how the psalmist ends. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Do you notice the shift? The psalm begins with, the fool says in his heart there is no God, there's no use for God. Impractical living, thinking, doing, spending, loving, marrying. And then there is this shift, there is this new beginning. This turn towards God, saying, God, will you rise up? Will you intervene? May salvation come from Zion. And here you see that even though the psalmist doesn't quite yet know how this is going to turn out, he does not yet have 2020 vision. He is, he is looking for help from Zion. He is looking for assistance from God's holy hill. He is waiting for God to act. He is waiting for God to intervene. You notice a shift here. This is a, this is a radical new starting point. God is going to act. He hasn't yet definitively, but the psalmist had a sure hope and a deep knowledge of this at some point or another. God is going to decisively once and for all act, and he is going to restore the fortunes of Israel, and he is going to bring salvation from Zion. God is going to act decisively. Of course, Much later, we know exactly how and where and through whom God has acted decisively. Help from Zion came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The fortunes were restored through the life, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist didn't know this, but in good faith and deep assurance and knowledge of God's goodness, his anticipation was one day for God to come and act decisively. See, The psalmist here represents this as an an ultimate reality, as an ultimate reference point. I I am so encouraged to hear that you have a Mission Emphasis Week and that you are focusing your attention for some time on the work of God in the world. And I hope you also do this on the work of God in your neighborhood, here in Elmhurst, in Chicagoland, in America, where the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it is, it is my hope and prayer that, that, that we would have the same deep knowledge and assurance that the psalmist has that salvation comes from God through the Lord Jesus Christ alone and that this, and this only, is an accurate reflection of reality. And that when you leave here today, And when you meet your colleagues and coworkers and friends and maybe classmates who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have this deep and certain knowledge that what God has revealed in his word is true. That you can have a firm confidence that not only to others, but to you that he has communicated and revealed that he has forgiven your sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your certain knowledge. This is your proper confidence that out of his everlasting righteousness, out of his mere grace, for the sake of Christ's merits, that the faith that the Holy Spirit works in your heart is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, all over this town, in this area, there are people who are dying to know what you know. They are marrying without any reference to the living God. They are burying their mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers without any awareness that there is someone above. May God use you to winsomely and lovingly and patiently bear witness to the knowledge of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ.